Steve, happy Monday. How are you, man? Really good. Yeah, really good. Had a great weekend. Got out snowmobiling on Saturday, although my sled broke down on me in the first couple miles. It's like <laughs> we left the trailhead. So that kind of stunk, off to a good start. I was with uh with some good, great, you know, great guys, great friends, and uh I ended up just riding on the back of one sled and then we kind of rode up into a, a little lake area and just took turns riding around. Got to spend that was my first time A on newer sleds. Uh Anthony, one of our one of our friends, the guy does a death like every year. He's got pretty killer you know brand new polaris and compared to my old 07 that thing just ripped around and then also got to ride on a, a snow bike timber sled thing and that, oh that's that was, cool that was cool man that, they were i was actually like you know because i, I want to get back into snowmobiling um at some point here in the future you know my um obviously the kids have been so little you just kind of got to pick and choose your hobbies when they're this little and time is precious but uh um I was like kind of wanting those like a go up there and trial, right? Like I knew I was gonna the snow bike was gonna be there to ride both. And yeah, man, I don't know which one. The snow bike was fun, but it was so easy that uh um it just didn't take skill, right? Like within a f- I mean, I'm sure there's obviously you can get really good at it, but to go from zero to being proficient enough just to kind of ride around takes like all of 10 minutes if you've been on a motorcycle before. Whereas okay. snowmobile takes like legit technique you know like there's two different guys you know um you know one guy can just go everywhere on that thing and the guy behind him on the exact same sled you know can't make it 100 yards without getting stuck because there's just a lot of technique to it so um it was a little like ah, that's kind of too easy on the snow bike so i don't know huh. either way it was, it was a, a, a freaking good fun time so nice man yeah. well, that's good i did a whole lot of nothing other than running around to uh kids games and house chores so I w- we won't even need to talk about my weekend there's nothing uh, dude, fun I'm, happening i guess I, yeah, i'm not looking forward to like it's gonna be awesome when the kids are older and hopefully in sports but at the same time yeah just being uh i guess soccer mom right just running yeah. around for practice <laughs> to practice like oh uh, that's like i don't have enough time to you know freaking do anything as it is it's gonna be make make it even harder yeah it cracks me up like the whole sports thing because you know how quiet my wife jen is and like yeah. laid back and reserved but like we're at games and she's like yelling at a ref you know it's like <laughs> really yeah oh dude it's like she's so out of her shell and she's not like a like one of those crazy obnoxious parents but at the same time like she can't like just totally sit back and relax which is her 99 percent of the time right. you know dude it's so <laughs> funny you would crack up you're like i've never seen her like this before well i want video proof of this next time that happens yeah Text it over. <laughs> well it's funny on saturday we had to split up i took my daughter to her game and she took my son to his game because they're at different places same times and the game my daughter played was like it was just rough like they're playing basketball and the other team was beyond aggressive and fouling left and right and i had to text her like i'm so glad you're not here <laughs> you know it's like she would not handle that well <laughs> all right let's get into hunting though yeah. yeah um yeah before we do man the episode from last week um we didn't get a chance to debrief that but uh when we talked with jared from hunting fool about oh yeah the preference points and all that um that was literally an episode that we recorded that morning and put out. And uh, I think both you and I took a lot out of that, Steve. And we certainly have gotten quite a bit of feedback. And it's been interesting to see, uh, I mean, all kinds of different ideas and thoughts and preferences. And this is the way it should be type feedback from hunters. It it makes you realize what like truly a complex issue it is, you know, in terms of like 
appeasing hunters uh, <laughs> as it comes to all this. Where, have you gotten emails where people are like, you guys are idiots, like points are the best thing ever? Um, no, I mean, definitely some pushback, like some pushback yeah. to your so- socialism comment. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, it's the freaking truth, man. Like it's good <laughs> for the first people to get on it, and really bad down the road. I just, yeah. I mean, I'm, there's probably better versions of the bad system, but right. I'd love that if someone's an expert on this, let's have them on and talk about, like, argue the the pro side of of a point system because I just don't see it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's such a complex issue, man. And it to me, it was one of those things where we went into that discussion without an agenda or like an idea of here's what's perfect. Like it was very much a conversation of thinking out loud. And uh, yeah, so maybe some of our comments weren't fully, uh, fully formed or what thought out. But I think the discussion in the end is uh, worth having. And it's something we're, you know, have even talked about and working on other podcasts with is to get more input from other folks on those topics so if you guys haven't listened to that one by chance go back the last week episode 269 and check it out uh i'm sure it'll be hopefully entertaining maybe educational and definitely spark something with you and feel free to shoot us an email and let you know what your thoughts are for sure because there's i think it would be the more ideas we can get out there the better right like the more input the better yeah if someone's an expert and, and has a very good argument for keeping the system uh, I'd love to hear it. I just don't see it. We're going to have Toby on from Idaho Fish and Game and, and talk about why they've not done points. Um, you know, cause I'm, I, you know, I'm a huge favor of not, uh, just off the information that I have. So change my mind. <laughs> um, cool. Yeah. Let's dive into a couple archery questions that have come up. Um, you know, this one isn't, uh, timely because we're not right in the middle of a bow hunt, but I thought it was a kind of a fun question to talk about and think about. Um, that's been sitting there and uh, a guy was just wondering when are you pulling your bow off your pack and carrying it in ready mode how much of the time is your bow on your pack versus in your hunts uh, on a hunt on average um, to me that's completely like species dependent terrain dependent things like that but uh, yeah hit on it for you Steve I'm sure it's yeah, potentially it's just, different from like elk versus uh, mule deer right yeah last Thursday we took a long lunch and went uh, did a little snowshoe training hike um, right out of Boise here and um, somebody brought up well, there's a you know a company out there that has an accessory for attaching your bow to the pack and and I just responded like stop being such a freaking wuss and just carry your bow in your hand like if you are hunting and you have your any chance you're gonna you know come across an animal have your damn bow in your hand so you can shoot right like i don't want it strapped to the back of my pack yes it's a little inconvenient to hold but you know big deal suck it up uh you just kind of get used to it i mean i I remember like the first couple years of bow hunting you know you're like oh this is such a pain in the butt your hands going numb stuff like that but um at the end of the day you need your weapon in your hand um and yes there's terrain uh for sure like um you know it, it on my when I had my mountain goat tag in 2014, my bow was strapped to my pack a lot, right? Like we're very steep, rough, rugged country. And you weren't just going to like walk up on a mountain goat at any second. But if I'm in the elk woods, just kind of cruising through and going through downfall and stuff like that, my bow's in my hand, man. At any second, a, a freaking tasty spike is going to come run by me. I'm going to shoot that sucker. Um, you know, mule deer hunting. I could see like my early high country stuff. Um, again, the very low odds that you're just going to be walking along and a buck standing there. But even most of the time, my bow is going to be in my hand for that, unless it's, you know, climbing up a pretty aggressive slope, getting up onto a peak to glass or something like that, or, or 
the opposite dropping down something like, okay, this is pretty technical. Let me get my bow on my pack. But um, for the most part, yeah, you rifle or bow. I just want that thing in my hand ready to go. Um, so it's hiking in the dark. I mean, the exo systems are kind of built that way of hiking in on the dark. Um, you know, you got an accessory to strap to the pack and then anytime when you're actually hunting and, you know, as we all know, things can happen in a matter of seconds, a hunt can go from, being total crap to animal dead on the ground within 10 seconds. So um, it just makes a lot of sense to me to have my weapon right there in my hand, ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same for me, especially like you said, elk hunting. I mean, it's pretty much in my hand all the time. If it's shooting, I want to say if it's shooting light, but even sometimes outside of that hiking in the dark, um, I can think of times we've been side hilling in the dark. And on one hand, it's like, yeah, you might theoretically want two hands available, but Sometimes I'm in situations where I know if I'm going down, I'm probably going to cause more damage to my bow if it's on my pack than in, you know, the hand that's away from the hill, right? If I'm side hilling, for example. Um, but yeah, pretty much carry it all the time. Yeah. Always keep your bow on the downhill side of you, right? Whenever you're going right. to slip, you're going to fall into it. So when, if you're zigzagging down a hill, my, my weapon is always changing. So it's on the opposite side of the hill, right? So if, I'm side hilling down and, and, you know, it's in my left hand. If I'm going to fall, it's to, you know, I'm going to put my right hand down, uh, never carried on the inside. Yeah. That's, that's asking for trouble. Yep. Yeah. And just another random tip, if you guys are using, whether it's a bow carrier or rifle carrier, at least on our pack systems that, you know, sometimes we'll see photos and things like that where a guy's not using it. It's just kind of like hanging out there. Um, go ahead and take and extend the, the rifle carrier, the bow carrier out. So it has, um, a good amount of webbing so it's further down away from the pack and then you can essentially just sandwich it between the bag and the frame really easy just kind of tuck it in there so it's out of the way it's not swinging around so if you guys are hearing like oh i'm going to use the bow carrier some or some not you don't have to necessarily even take it on and off but you don't have to leave it hanging out there either just yeah. slide it between the bag and the frame and it tucks away nice and neat mm-hmm. um cool yeah we had another another one steve to throw at you i'm interested to hear more about uh, a guy heard a previous episode from us and he says I heard Steve mention in the past that he can look at a broadhead and know that it will fly well, or maybe that it mm. won't fly well just from looking mm-hmm. at it. Can you have him elaborate on that? And then there's kind of a part two uh, to his question. It said, what would be each of your recommendations for a quality but not uber high-end broadhead? So I'm assuming by that he means, you know, yeah, not like a $100 broadhead. That There's quite a few out there these days, but something more uh, off the shelf. Yeah, um, you're really just looking at surface area of the broadhead is probably the biggest indicator the more metal you got on the the further that thing looks away from a field point the the higher potential there is for it not to fly well right um just i always go back to that analogy of you're strapping wings to the front of your arrow and if those wings aren't perfectly aligned uh like perpendicular to the arrow shaft and coming out of your bow right i mean it's like tuning so important you just want that arrow coming straight out if it's coming out with tail right or tail low or whatever kind of like as you'd reference a paper tuning issue you're just going to get bad flight because the wings are not in the flight path right and they're trying to steer the arrow from the front and so you're offsetting that with bigger veins in the back and yeah you know yada 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 it's the whole wormhole to go down there but just looking at surface area so um and these are all general rules, right? Uh, there are, I've seen broadheads that like don't make a lot of sense that still fly well to me. Um, but the wider the cutting diameter on a fixed blade broadhead, the worse it's going to fly. 
A big one is the longer the broadhead is. So from the end of the arrow shaft, the insert to the tip of the broadhead, the longer that is, um, it's gonna just inherently be more finicky. You want like a really a short compact broadhead, all else things being equal, is just gonna fly better um, than a long broadhead. And that's because um, as, as everyone should do, screw a broadhead on and then get it on a hard surface and spin the arrow with your fingers and look for wobble there at the, at the where the broadhead is meeting the shaft. And then if there's any misalignment, um, of the broadhead to the arrow shafts, uh, you're going to see more wobble, right? And that's just going to get exaggerated the longer the broadhead is. So cutting diameter width or length of the broadhead. And then also I'll just take a broadhead, uh, screw it on an arrow and then just point it like straight at my eye, right? Like be careful, but you know, have it, you know, six inches, 12 inches away from your face and just look down it. Um, and you sh it should just be very smooth, smooth transitions over everything. Um, and those are all going to be indicators of, of better, better broadhead flight. Um, so short compact is really going to be in general, better than, than long wide cutting diameter. Got it. And then you can just look at, you know, um, from a tolerance standpoint as well, you, you, know, you start getting more nitpicky is, is how is, how are the blades attached to the broadhead? Is there, you know, are there a bunch of little screws everywhere that have more potential for misalignments? Um, this, you know, the simpler it can be built, the better, um, that that's definitely another indicator of, you know, if it's like all the blades got little screws and one of them's just off. And so that blade is slightly sitting at a different angle than the other blades. That's going to be something as far as two blade, three blade, four blade, um, man, I've seen all of them fly exceptionally well. I don't think there's necessarily a huge, uh, difference between that. I'd say two and four are generally better than threes in my experience. Uh, but that's, um, there's, there's exceptions to that. So plenty of great three blade broadheads on the market that fly really well. Yeah. And thoughts on a recommendation for a quality, but not super high end broadhead. Oh man. So I have a bucket of solid broadheads that I continue <laughs> to shoot. I'm not like, uh, I'm not super up to speed on, you know, the latest stuff. Um, you know, I think slick trick has been a, a, you know, just been a great broadhead that's been around for a while and they haven't really changed the design because it doesn't need to be. That's a very affordable broadhead that, that just generally performs well for guys. Yeah. Um, G5 makes some good stuff. Wacom. Uh, I've shot some Wacom Tritons. I don't even know if that thing still exists. That's a good one. Um, gosh, I don't know, man. Yeah, there's um, what, have, what have you been shooting the last few years? um old salads as well uh, <laughs> and and slick tricks though like that's slick my tricks, choice yeah. for sure of, yeah you're yeah. kind of off the shelf really high quality falls flies really well uh relatively durable for sure but it is replaceable blades super sharp um yeah whackums are nice as well i've shot those in the past they fly fantastic to me they're not uh, quite as durable as a slick trick. No, um, that's yeah, been my experience for sure. So yeah. um, both of them are, you know, have some similarities, but I would go slick trick. Um, probably put a gun to my mm -hmm. head. And I'd shoot those at pretty much anything and not think twice about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think the biggest thing um, is uh, what it used to be when I first started boning, you did the whole like sight in your field points. And then right before season, you screwed all your broadheads on and that's all you shot. Cause, and you had to reside in your boat, right? Like your broadheads hit mm -hmm. five inches low or four inches left or, you know, both five inches low and four inches left. And you re resided in to me, that's a huge indicator. 
um, that things aren't right in your bow. Uh, could be the broadhead choice. Um, you know, a broad going off on a tangent here, a broadhead is going to a good broadhead, no matter what the broadhead is, if you're not properly tuned, you're not going to get good flight. But to me, like when like a solid flies exceptionally well. And so say I was to screw on like an old muzzy, right? Like actually that's what I would use when I was broadhead tuning is I'd, uh, I would, if I could get an old muzzy to like fly and group with my field points, then I knew what my solids were just going to be absolutely dialed. Right. I was using like a, a, a crappier design broadhead um, from a flight performance characteristic standpoint. Um, and if I could get that to fly really well, then I knew everything else was going to fly good. Um, but guys will say like, well, the, you know, this one broadhead hits three inches left and this one broadhead hits a little bit low, you know, and, and they're not changing anything, but just screwing different broadheads on. They're all just different reactions to, uh, the the core problem is you're not your bow's not properly tuned. Could be arrow spine, could be shooting form. I mean, it, it's you just go down such a wormhole there of of reasons why you're not getting good flight. Could um, you know the one broadhead might um, your arrow ends your arrow shafts might might not be square, and so the broadheads are screwing on a little differently, and you're going to get sporadic results. But at the end of the day, um, if you're really tuned well, you should be able to shoot just about any broadhead and shoot well. Um, you know, shoot tight groups with your field points out to 60, 70, 80 yards. At some point, I think we had, maybe it was Tim Gillingham on here. I think he argues against my point. Like, look, you're changing the dynamic aerodynamics of your arrow. No matter what you do, they're never going to perfectly group. And I think on paper, that's true. Um, and obviously that guy knows all, you know a lot more than I do, but I think he's also probably holding his self to a much, much higher standard of, you know, exactly. like I want to shoot a his one tolerance inch group. is totally yeah. different than your his average hunter. tolerance is very tiny. A hundred yards. He wants to put a field point and a broadhead in the same hole and, or he doesn't want to do that, but he's saying that's not possible. I'm like within my, you know, when I was shooting good, I could shoot six, seven, eight inch groups at a hundred yards. Um, and yeah, my, as long as my field points and broadheads were in that same group, then like, okay, that's good. Maybe my field points all hit two inches higher, but to me, that's like an acceptable tolerance. Um, so yeah, just going off of going off of that, of, uh, your broadheads and field points for the most part should be hitting in the exact same group. And then the difference, once you're properly tuned, yes, you could shoot any broadhead, but now throw hunting variables into that, throw wind, throw poor shooting form, throw angles and all those little things, you know, kind of going back to, to form like a little bit of pressure on your uh, grip on the inside versus the outside or whatever, you're going to change how that arrow comes out of the bow. And that's where you want um, a more forgiving broadhead. That's just, you know, when a gust of wind does come up right as you're shooting, it's only going to hit two inches, right. Instead of seven, eight inches, right. Versus a, a broadhead that doesn't fly as well. Yep. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned something there about kind of essentially testing and using that muzzy is like, okay, how yeah. tuned is my bow with basically a, a broadhead that's going to exaggerate issues? Yeah. I've done that too, because uh, a really good broadhead, sometimes it just covers that stuff up, right? So it's yeah. like, yep. you screw that on and it's fine, pretty good, but then you screw something else on and it's like, whoa, maybe I'm not as tuned as I thought. The only thing I would say with that is, because I do that too, I have a pile of old broadheads, is don't tune to one bad broadhead um yeah especially with like what by that i mean one type of broadhead but even also with one arrow because sometimes you might have an issue like you said with an arrow where it's not square or what have you 
that's not always as visible. Hopefully you're spinning and doing things like that to judge the arrow. But what I try and do, especially early on with like a new bow setup or if I've changed strings or something like that is I want to shoot a handful of different broadheads um, with different arrows and look for some patterns, right? Because, yep. you know, I've mistakenly in the past put a broadhead on and essentially tuned to that broadhead only to then realize I'm going to change broadheads and I'm having a different result because it's what you said your broadheads reflecting something that's not correct in your setup, but how that happens downrange can happen in different ways. So your broadhead might've been three inches left and one inch high, but another broadhead might not have had that same downrange impact. So it gets, it gets tricky, but I I think in the end, it's definitely worth just testing multiple things essentially and looking for that pattern and then kind of like narrowing that down ultimately towards the broadhead you're going to shoot. Yeah. You're tuning. You need, I mean, like if most likely I've dialed in my field points, like I, you know, I broke the bow in, broke the string and got a few hundred shots through it. I've then gone and done some type of bear shaft tuning. I kind of fluctuate what my tuning looks like over the years. Um, and, and I know I'm getting decent flight uh, and I'll probably not shortly after that, go grab some broadheads and shoot 50, 60 yards and just confirm that they're flying well. But when I, when it comes like, all right, time to get the bow ready for hunting season, that said, I'm probably sighted in out to 70, 80 uh, with field points. And then I'm going to, uh, I'll go as the furthest distance I feel comfortable that I can shoot good groups at. It's usually like 60 yards. Um, and then, yeah, I'll grab three broadheads, screw them on three arrows, spin check them, make sure everything's looking perfect. And then, and then, yeah, I'll just shoot. I'll put an orange dot out there at 60 yards on a target. And then all those broadheads should be grouping together. So if, if everything's tuned right, they're hitting the orange dot. If I got some tuning still to do, some fine tuning, tweaking, maybe they're all two inches low or three inches left, right? And that's going to be an indicator that you need to to do something. It it, it should be the case that, yeah, I said a, a good broadhead is one inch left and a poor one is eight inches left. Like it should always go that same direction, just exaggerated. It shouldn't be a good broadhead all is two over. inches left and another one is four inches high and right. Then you got more wonky crap going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, you should have a consistent pattern of going in, in a direction away from away from your aiming point. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I was trying to probably not communicate well is basically going back to your whole idea of how you used to do it is like you essentially recite into the broadhead. Right. Um, and what I'm saying is even on a tuning perspective, don't tune to one specific broadhead either. Right. So don't assume it's like, yes. yeah, I'm three inches left. Let me just get this one broadhead with this one arrow hitting here. Because essentially that's what you're doing. You're essentially siding in or tuning to one broadhead um, and getting that right. But then you might change that up and then realize you're not actually dialed. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of guys probably shoot expandables and it is so much less critical. Yeah. Uh, like, Forget I mean, everything we said. Go shoot. Yeah. yeah just, <laughs> I mean, for the most part, they are way, way easier to shoot. Um, and that's uh, maybe we'll ask that question. We have Idaho Fishing Game on here in a few weeks, why they haven't done that. Um, maybe it is keeping harvest success rates down to keep game populations up. I don't know. Um, but uh, they definitely fly better. You know, yeah. it's the trade off there of, yeah, they might fail, but more guys are going to hit, you know, even put a field point through the lungs of an elk, it's going to die. Um, so more guys are going to be more accurate. I think there's a good argument there for, for more ethical harvest. So, yeah. Yeah. There's definitely an interesting argument there of like, yes, clearly a, mechanical isn't going to penetrate an elk shoulder like a well-constructed fixed blade would but 
would less guys hit his shoulder if they were shooting a more accurate broadhead, yeah, I, I right? Like there's all these easily, ifs. If you understand archery at all and tuning, you could easily make that argument and win that all day long. All right. Um, we I, we got this email from a guy who was uh, new to elk hunting, had several different questions, some of which I emailed him back on. But just I thought there was a few interesting things to basically chat through in here relatively briefly. One of his questions, which I think is a fantastic question, but super frustrating to try and answer, is he said, what does everyone overlook? Um, and I think that's one of the issues is inexperienced hunters don't know what they don't know, right? So they're they're going, okay, I, I see all this advice on do this and do that. And obviously, there's a lot of common wisdom out there, whether you're talking tactics or gear or what have you, but they don't know what they don't know. And then hunters with experience also don't know what inexperienced hunters don't know, if that makes sense, right? So they're like, like a question like that, what does everyone overlook? It's like, gosh, dang it. I wish I could tell you that. That'd be great. But I'm probably not overlooking that anymore. So I can't tell yeah. you, right? You know, and it's yeah. honestly, Especially it's something I try and think of a lot about with the podcast as well, whether we're doing a Q&A or having a guest on is that that whole balance of like, speaking to someone with less experience, not getting just caught in the basics and really giving some good information that's, you know, maybe a little bit more advanced, but then not losing people. And uh, I throw that out there to say, number one, I'm totally curious to hear what your thoughts are on that, Steve. But number two, for listeners, whether you're newer and you've had like this recent enlightenment of like, literally last season, I learned this lesson and I didn't know what I didn't know. And like, this is something that guys in my shoe should hear from or maybe you are more experienced and you're like you're mentoring a newer hunter and you're realizing oh man there's like all these things that i take for granted that i wish more people knew um if you have specifics no matter which camp you're in i would say send us an email um and we can either talk about that in the future or what have you but i, I would just love to hear some feedback on that so if you guys want to email us to podcast at xomountgear.com over the next week two weeks or something like that i'll you know include that maybe in some future episodes and um give away a hunt backcountry podcast t-shirt or something to somebody who gives us a cool tip so but in terms of beginners and what does everyone overlook steve um what comes to mind i think there's there's two categories here is you know did he mean gear or hunting mindset strategy yeah, um, i think he just meant everything like i think it's literally just i want to know what other other people overlook right yeah. yeah i think the gear thing at this point there is so much you know good information out there um obviously podcasts and videos and blog articles like I, the inexperienced guy uh, should be able to get the, i think that learning curve like when i first started backpacking you know even just 15 years ago um to now like there's so much information out there that that learning curve has drastically changed i think within within a season you could if you did a bunch of leg work up front bought some good gear off recommendations and then you're going to go out there and use stuff and go back to um my rule that i used to have of like the three strikes you're out thing right like if i don't for the most part if i pack something and think i need it but for after three hunts if i if i just haven't used it just take it out of the freaking pack stop packing it um i think if you kind of within a season you could probably get fairly dialed in on your gear um so that part to me is, is easier overlooking 
Um, you know, a lot of it just so much of it's fun to talk about gear and it's hard to talk about mental toughness and attitude back there. And I think that's the biggest, the biggest hurdle for success. You know what I mean? Just having patience, knowing stuff takes time, doesn't happen easy. Um, and just having like a really positive outlook and, and keeping that, you know, just going back to what we just talked about with carrying your bow in your hand, a hunt can change in a matter of seconds. So you always probably the biggest thing for me that I've learned. One of them is, um, always be expecting to kill an animal at any moment. Um, I think I used to definitely have it in my mind, like, okay, I'm backpacking into this country. I'm not even going to see an animal for the first five miles. So I'm just going to put my head down and freaking tromp in there. You know what I mean? Or vice versa. Uh, the, like I am five, six miles back there and I just blew up an opportunity on an elk and it's time to like, it's Sunday at noon. It's like, okay, I need to start heading back just to put my head down and hike out of there and mope your way out. You know, um, that to have that mindset of just did it any freaking moment, this can happen and, and approach every step, um, you know, gosh, going back to your, the article or the pod, article you wrote on the podcast with Dave about, um, see what you're seeing and hear what you're hearing, right? Like always mm-hmm. being alert and attentive all the time. And it takes effort to do that. It's, it's really easy to, to zone out and, and just put one foot in front of another and hike out of country or hike into country, but to just be aware and, and ready, man, that's, that's for me, a big change. A lot of success comes, um, you know, harvest kill opportunities come when you're not expecting it. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect example of that. And it's just recent, but it's interesting because it's like a, a very drastic experience of two back-to-back days that were different. But when I shot my bull in Idaho on a rifle hunt, it's like, we knew we were in elk and we were pursuing those elk and we had been here in bugles since the morning. And it was like multiple hours of knowing <clears throat> that a shot opportunity could come at like any moment and even yeah. like tracking down that opportunity, making that opportunity happen. And then the next day go into a different area. Nothing's bugling, covering new country, literally midday, one o'clock mid midday. Yeah. And we sit down yeah. and take a break. And then it goes from nothing's happening to you killing an elk. Right. Yeah. And if, if you three minutes, yeah, yeah three minutes. Yeah. So if, if you had your head down hiking or you weren't expecting anything can happen at any moment, or if you had this idea of like, Oh, it's midday, nothing's going to happen. Like, that's a perfect example of the two different ways that success can come. Like, you know, you're in it, you're, you're focused. Like, I mean, literally every step we were making and pursuing my bull, like we were thinking through, um, because we knew that that opportunity had potential. And then the next day when you shot your bull, it was basically the same. Like you knew anything can happen at any moment, but you didn't have that, like in the moment tangible, there's elk here. It was literally just, we could kill an elk at any moment and that's how it happened. Right. Yeah. That one, um, specifically too, like that 10 years ago, we were up on this nice rounded ridge. Right. And we were, we knew we were heading South. Um, and we could have stayed on top of the ridge and just had this nice, easy walking path. Cause I, I wanted to get to destination, you know, B over there. Um, that's where I really, like, had in my head that we we're going to start getting into elk, but we're sitting there and it's like, man, we should really drop about 400 feet off the side of this ridge and side hill. And it's a old burn. There's down logs everywhere. It's a freaking mess. You're going to be slipping and sliding. But if there's going to be an elk, it's going to be down there. Right. Um, and so taking, you know, not taking the easy path and taking the hard path where 
you know, we put ourselves in the position to have the opportunity um, versus just staying up on top of that ridge would have been, you know, middle of the day is much lower chance that an elk was just cruising along, along, along that ridge. It was a nice sunny day. They were going to be bedded down somewhere in some timber uh, on a little bench. And, and that's what we did. We dropped down sideways half halfway down the mountain started side hilling into it and you know a few minutes later holy crap there's a freaking spike right there shoot him dead hunts over yeah i uh <laughs> when you said spike it reminded me of earlier when you were talking about the whole bow thing and always having your bow ready because yeah. a tasty spike could walk on at any moment <laughs> i meant to give you like trouble and basically say we should we should create a new rule where anytime we say the word spike we just have to lead with tasty it's like it could be a tasty spike. <laughs> the way you said that, I was like, that because then it becomes permanent part of language. Like you can't just say, "Oh, it was a spike." Like, "Oh, it was a tasty spike." Yeah, <laughs> I should, saw this. Should be I'm the new term. Many other people know about it. It was like on Instagram. It was what was it? It was a, a t-shirt design. Uh, it was called the Spoon and Crockpot Club. Yeah, and then Boone and it said, tomorrow's trophies today. <laughs> <laughs> I was. Rick, I saw that. I just about ordered the damn thing. I was laughing so hard shooting tomorrow's trophies today. I was like, that's perfect. Uh, <laughs> oh, man, we're about halfway through that spike meet. It's so freaking good. Uh, yeah. yeah. Nice. Good. We uh, we have some more questions, actually, from that guy and even beginner elk questions in general, but uh, they're a bit more involved. I don't want to rush through them, so maybe we'll just kind of like keep a little series going and add some to future episodes and like I said to you guys listening, um, if you have anything that kind of falls within that inexperienced hunters don't know what they don't know, you know, that whole idea of like, really, what are some takeaways that can help beyond the common advice? Or like you said, Steve, the gear stuff's pretty easy to dial these days. Um, yeah, shoot us a shoot us a question there. Shoot us a thought there, something that sticks out to you. Uh, again, the email is just podcast at exomountaingear.com. Or if you have any other random thought or question or thing you want to hear about, just let us know as well, and we'll tackle that in a future episode. Um, As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. We really do uh, appreciate the support of the podcast and uh, love the interaction with you guys and hearing your stories and and all that stuff. It's really fun. So appreciate it. And if you haven't yet, hit that subscribe button, and we'll talk to you soon.